Amen. Thank you, Mary. Great job, great song, great thought. Aren't you glad that after you make Jesus your Savior, that He'll be your friend? I sure am. Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Good to have Brother Dave Kesson back with us tonight. And uh, glad to hear your surgery went well. And uh, just praying God will give you a speedy recovery. And uh, Colossians chapter 2. Don't have a Bible with you? There's one near you. It's got a hard black cover. Appreciate uh, Brother Josh teaching for me last Wednesday. He and uh, Brother Joe, a great blessing to me and to the church here. And Stephen now, he's been with us, I, I guess, about a month. And he's been a great help uh, as well. I thank God for uh, him. Uh, I hope you appreciate uh, the men that God has raised up here. And uh, God's been very good to us. Uh, on Wednesdays when I've been speaking, uh, we are going through the book of Colossians, uh, verse by ver verse, two Wednesdays ago. We talked about Paul warning the Colossian believers to beware of man's philosophy and vain deceit. You remember, as he went through chapter one, he had a lot of positive things to say to them. He spent a lot of time reminding them about who Jesus was and what he had done for them and who they were in Christ. Now, uh, some aspects of who uh, Christ was and what he had done for believers, it was under assault in early forms of what would later be called Gnosticism, man's philosophy on who Jesus was, man's philosophy on what Christianity should be. And the early forms of that were creeping into the church. And if you remember when we were talking about chapter 1, we talked about how God the Spirit was laying this foundation through Paul so that he could bring up what was going on to try to correct some issues that needed to be corrected. Remember when we talked last time, we, uh, Paul warned them about flattering words. And flattery is very often uh, the devil's clothing for false doctrine and bad ideas. And we talked about how all of us are susceptible to flattery. In fact, at certain times, uh, we're especially vulnerable to it. And we encourage one another to be a positive as much as possible, but not use our compliments uh, in a manipulative way or to try to get someone to do something they shouldn't uh, do. And because we're vulnerable... Uh, the New Testament is not just filled with teaching and positive things, it's also filled with warnings. And Paul uh, made a special effort to warn them about man's philosophy being lifted up to the level of God's Word. We talked about that last time. Now, some parts of man's philosophy are, are helpful. Uh, God made some things so that man could discover them. But when man's philosophy is contrary to something that God has said, we reject man's philosophy and we trust God's Word. And all of the fullness of Godhead, remember we closed out, uh, dwelled in Jesus Christ. Remember all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is to have the preeminence in anything that comes from the heart or mind of man. But it wasn't just man's philosophy being elevated above God's Word that Paul wanted to warn the Colossian believers about. He wanted to also speak to them and warn them about uh, what I will call the hot-button subject of the first century. Uh, this hot-button subject 
at the time when the New Testament was written finds its way in minor ways in several New Testament books, but it's in there quite a lot in the book of Acts, in the book of Galatians, and here in the book of uh, Colossians. Uh, By the way, there are hot-button issues in American Christianity today as well. Say, what are our hot-button issues in American Christianity? How about the role and nature of worship? How about which English version of the Bible is most accurate? Uh, By the way, I believe the one I have is perfectly accurate. How about this? How about the importance of assembling with the church? That's a hot-button subject in American Christianity. Um, How about what it means to be a disciple? I personally think that's a huge hot-button subject today. Is being a disciple rigorous and demanding? Is it taking up your cross and following Jesus? Or is it cool and, and casual and something you just kind of fit in around the rest of your life? Those are hot-button subjects in American Christianity today. But at the time the New Testament was being written, uh, the hot-button subject was the place and role of Judaism. The role and place of Jewish religious traditions. Now in American Christianity today, Judaism and the religious traditions of the Jews, they're not really much of an issue at all other than people throwing around the phrase legalism. Uh, By the way, we are in a Sunday night doctrinal series uh, with 53 subjects. We just finished subject 35 last Uh, a couple of days ago, subject number 50, uh, Lord willing, is going to be on the subject of of legalism. And even though it's going to show up uh, and be the focus of a Sunday night uh, message in a few months, because it shows up in our text, we're going to talk about it some tonight. Uh, By the way, I do not believe the only way to preach and teach the Bible is verse by verse. I get so sick of hearing People say that uh, the only way to you're not preaching the Bible if you're not preaching it word by word. I always ask them the same thing. Show me one example of a sermon in the Bible where they went verse by verse. I, I don't believe you have to do that, but there's an advantage to doing some of it, which is why I do some of it, because we end up on subjects that we might otherwise pass by. And so we won't pass by it because it's going to, be in their next text tonight, because it wasn't just man's philosophy that was a danger to these faithful believers. It was also man's religious traditions, in particular, Jewish religious traditions. And if you are able to stand, if you would stand tonight, please, in honor of God's Word. The title of my thought tonight is, Beware of Man's Traditions. Beware of Man's Traditions In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it uh, to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a shoe of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let, man, let no man, therefore, judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Thank you, might be seated. We spent uh, much of our time two Wednesdays ago when I spoke last with the first part of Paul's warning in verse 8. Remember it there in verse 8? Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We talked about the warning of man's philosophy, a warning of the deceitfulness of man's vanity in thinking he is better equipped to determine right and wrong than our Creator. <laughs> to think that man has higher and greater thoughts than God. Uh, God's philosophy and God's thoughts on any issue of importance, they're contained in the Scriptures. Now man's philosophy, it's on display all around us. It's on display in our televisions, it's on display in our culture, it's on display in, in Hollywood, man's philosophy, it's on display in the institutions of higher learning, uh, but it is also a warning, not just of man's philosophy, but of man's traditions. Notice it is traditions uh, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. That word rudiments just means basic principles or first principles or foundational principles. You see, when the basics and foundation of our thinking is man's view of this world or man's take on what religion should be instead of God's view, we're, we're headed for trouble. Now you read this verse and when you get beyond uh, the man's philosophy, you know, I don't know what you think. When, when, when I read it, I think to myself, that's pretty hard to understand. But after this verse, uh, he's going to go and begin to talk about things that are going to help us understand that when he's speaking about the rudiments of the world, he's talking about Jewish religious traditions, basic first principles of Judaism that were a problem in Christianity in first century churches. You see, uh, in verse 9, He's going to continue to set the stage for warning them. He reminds them in verse 9 that in Jesus Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that Jesus of Nazareth was not kind of God. He was not just a mighty God. He was God the Son, God manifest in flesh. In verse 10, he begins to remind them of their position in Christ, and you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. See, these believers, just like true believers here tonight, are complete in Christ. We do not need anything from man-made Gnostic philosophy to be complete. We do not need anything from Judaism or Jewish traditions to be 
complete. We are now, if you're a true believer, you are complete in Christ. Do you remember as we went through chapter one, all of the things? Remember, Paul laid this foundation by reminding them of the things, the things that they already were in Christ as true Christian people. Uh, let's review a couple of them. Notice in verse 12 of chapter 1, they were already made meet, appropriate, well-placed for a heavenly inheritance, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. Notice that's past tense. It's already done. Same thing, past tense in verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of, his, of Christ. We are already delivered from darkness in Christ and already placed in Christ's kingdom. Uh, notice in verse 14, it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. They already had redemption. They were not waiting for redemption. This was a done deal. It was past tense. They were already reconciled to God through Christ's blood and cross in verse 20 and 21. And having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, yet now hath he reconciled. It's a done deal. If you are in Christ, you are already complete in him. You are already reconciled in him. You are already translated in his kingdom. You have already been made appropriate for your heavenly inheritance. That's why Paul can say things like he said in Romans 8.31 when he said, if God be for us, who can be against us? Now, you may remember, and this is a bit of review, us talking about the theological terms standing in state. Remember that? Our standing is who we are already in the mind of God as He looks at us through Christ. Our state is the part of who we already are in Christ that we actually have in our current possession. Remember that? Remember how we illustrated that uh, by the 18-year-old uh, who has a $100 million trust fund that he can't get till he's 30? Uh, re remember, his standing is that he's a multimillionaire. His state is he doesn't have everything that's his yet. And it's like that with us as Christians. God has given us and done things for us and has things uh, already complete that we are in Christ that we don't really possess yet today. Uh, our standing as we have all these things. Our state, well, we're struggling in our flesh. We're struggling in life. We're, we're struggling confessing our sins and, and trying to follow Jesus Christ. Um, now, these great truths are the foundation of Paul's letter because the Colossian believers were being told something else. They were being told if they would combine man's philosophy with what they knew from the Bible, that they would be smarter, wiser, and better than other Christian people. We talked about Paul warning them about that lie. But they were also being told that if they would add Jewish traditions aspects of Judaism to their Christianity, that they would be more complete, that they would be more spiritual, that they would be higher and better than they were without these Jewish things. As I said uh, earlier, it's tough for you and I as American Christians to relate to true biblical legalism. True biblical legalism 
is adding something Jewish either to get saved or to stay saved. Uh, we, I'm not going to go into detail in, in that tonight. We will in, in a few weeks. That's true biblical legalism. And I want you to understand how appealing this would have been at that time. I mean, listen, you, 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 these believers here, by this time, they maybe had part of the New Testament. They might not have had any of it yet. They had the Old Testament complete, but the New Testament was in the process of being written. I mean, imagine how appealing it would be when somebody comes to you and says, hey, listen, Jesus was a Jew. Uh, he kept all the Jewish laws as they're revealed in the Old Testament. No, he didn't keep the Jewish traditions. He fought with the Pharisees about that all the time, but he kept all the Jewish laws. Uh, the apostles were Jews. They kept all the Jewish laws as revealed in the Old Testament. In fact, as you go through the book of Acts, even late, I mean, decades after uh, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, you still find the Jewish believers in Jerusalem keeping the Jewish religion and traditions uh, still. Keep your hand there. Go back in your Bible to Acts 21. Acts 21. Say, Brother Wally, this lesson tonight is, uh, sounds a little complicated. Listen, some parts of the Bible are easier than others. I, I, I will be first in line to say that. I'll be first in line to say, you know, our subject tonight isn't one of the easiest subjects to talk about. Not because I, I'm, I'm afraid people are going to differ. I just think it's a hard thing to communicate and a harder thing to understand. But, but notice what's going on uh, in Acts chapter 21, verse 18. It says, in the day following, uh, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders were present, and when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said, and you ought to circle or underline this in your Bible, because this is the practice of the church in Jerusalem. You know, this is about 60 AD, so almost 30 years after uh, Christ. He says, thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe and they are all zealous of the law. Let that sink in. It says, And they are formed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do this, do therefore this that we say unto thee. We have four men which have a vow on them, a Jewish vow. He says, uh, them take and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are of nothing but that thou thyself walkest orderly and keepest the law. Do, do you hear that? Paul was willing to say, yeah, I will join these guys in purifying myself. I will offer the sacrifice in the temple along with them. Now, now, I know that's contrary to, to what we think, but it's because we don't think right. We'll talk about this in a few moments, about all the law of Moses. Verse 25, he says, As touching the Gentiles, which believe, which is us here tonight, we've written that they, and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only they keep themselves from uh, things offered to idols, from blood and from strangling, from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day purifying himself with them, entered in the temple to signify the 
uh, accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering uh, should be offered for every one of them. You say, Brother Wallow, you mean Paul was going to go into the Jewish tabernacle and let one of the Old Testament sacrifices be offered? Yeah. As a symbol of what Jesus Christ did, that's what the church of Jerusalem was doing. You see, they understood that the Old Testament laws were pictures and shadows of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And so because it was their culture, and because they understood what it meant now that Jesus had came, they kept that stuff up. I mean, think about it. I mean, you're a Gentile believer, and someone comes and says, listen, Jesus uh, was a Jew who kept the Old Testament laws. The apostles were Jews, and the church in Jerusalem are Jews, and they're keeping the Old Testament laws. And, and, and listen, the earliest church planters were Jews. The Bible says that when Paul went into a city, if there was anything Jewish going on, he went to the synagogue first. And that's why Romans 1 says the gospel is first to the Jews. In fact, when he went to Philippi, they didn't have a synagogue. There was a place where Jewish people gathered to pray. And he started there. So because of all this, when the New Testament was being written, the place of Judaism and Jewish religious traditions was a problem everywhere for the Apostle Paul and where the gospel was being spread. In fact, it was made worse by Jewish believers who took it upon themselves to travel around and try to get Gentile believers to keep the law. Go back a few pages to Acts chapter 15. Notice in Acts chapter 15, and this is quite a lot of years before what we just read, you know, according to the Bishop Usher's chronology, it's, you know, like 14 years earlier. Acts 15, 1, and certain men which came down from Judea uh, taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. That's true biblical legalism. So Jewish believers came down from the churches in Judea, and they came to uh, Antioch where Paul was, and that's what they began to teach. Verse 2, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. Listen, this was a problem everywhere. And in a day when the New Testament wasn't written yet, the apostles were the authority. They've been personally trained by Jesus. They have been told by Jesus that once the Holy Spirit came, that He would reveal truths unto them, that it was their place to take to the world. So they took the issue to the apostles. In fact, we're even told that these, quote, well-meaning Jewish believers, they weren't sent by the church. They just took it upon themselves. A few verses later, look in Acts 15, 23. It says, and they, that's the church in Jerusalem, wrote letters by uh, them uh, after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard, that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. 
Did you hear that? The church didn't send them. They took it upon themselves. By, by the way, if you ever watch what's going on in American Christianity, uh, a lot of this contemporary stuff where they're throwing out traditional uh, Christianity, they're, they're not out there trying to win people to the Lord. They're trying to go to people like people in churches like this, and they're trying to get you to believe like they believe. They're not out there uh, winning people to Christ and teaching them the things of God. And that's exactly what's going on here, just in a different context. Jewish believers took it upon themselves and they said, wow, you know what? We need to leave out of here and all these Gentile churches, they need us to tell them that they need to act more Jewish. They need to be circumcised. They need to keep the law of Moses. And Paul and Barnabas fought with them. They went to the apostles. The apostles said, no, that's not right. By the way, Christians... Dealing with other Christians teaching false doctrine is nothing new. And it was much more difficult for these early Christians because they did not have a completed Bible like you and I have today. And it is into this backdrop of this hot-button topic in the first century that Paul writes to warn these Colossian believers who are being tempted to change what they had been taught when they had been taught rightly when the church was planted. You can go back to Colossians. Notice first, they didn't need Jewish circumcision to be better. They already had spiritual circumcision in Christ. Colossians 2, verse 11 says, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Notice they also had already pictured in their immersion in Christ when they were immersed in water, in verse 12, buried with them in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. Notice also they were already forgiven for their trespasses, Pointed out by Old Testament ordinances in verses 13 and 14. He says, And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, have he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Uh, by the way, if you're here and you're not saved, you are dead spiritually in your sins. Uh, you can't do religious works to bring life to your soul. You can't join a church to bring life to your soul. You can't get baptized to bring life to your soul. Jesus Christ is the only individual who can make your dead soul live. And here he makes clear that not only were they already had the circumcision of Christ's salvation, they already buried with Him and risen with Him, and they also had already been forgiven. It is again, Paul is setting this thing. He wants to get through their minds that these people who are coming to you, trying to tell them that if they keep this Jewish religion and these Jewish traditions, they would be more spiritual. They would be more like Jesus. They would be more like the apostles. You'd be more complete. He's trying to lay this foundation so they do not fall for this stuff. There were Jewish traditions like the distance you could walk on the Sabbath without it being considered work. There were Old Testament ordinances like the dietary laws. Like, I mean, that's in the Bible for the Jews. 
You know, you don't eat stuff that doesn't, you know, uh, divide the hoof and chew the cud. There were Jewish traditions like lots of detailed procedures for how you washed your hands and your arms uh, before you ate. I mean, you, you had to have your hands in the uh, air so that when you washed, the water from where you're washing didn't come down on your hand. I mean, very specific things that were linked to their traditions and the Pharisaic traditions. There were Old Testament ordinances, things in the Bible like three feasts a year that were celebrations where every Jewish male was required to come to the, tem- uh, the temple. Uh, there were Jewish traditions like on the Sabbath, you were required to eat three meals. Have to eat three meals. Now, I like that. And you were required in at least one of those meals, you had to have bread. That was a Jewish tradition. There were Old Testament ordinances. I mean, things in the Bible, like a day of the week was supposed to be set aside to the Lord. You see, these Jewish traditions, they didn't matter. In fact, Jesus uh, fought all the time because of people making traditions above the Bible. But those written ordinances did. And Paul tells them that those things, those ordinances, they were blotted out by the cross of Christ in verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. See, the first question that I have when I read something like that is, what are the ordinances? See, people have this idea that when the Bible talks about the law of Moses and, and, and all that, that is all one thing and that it's somehow now gone because of Christ. And as we've talked about several times in our Bible Institute class, you know, the, 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 the law of Moses is not just one part. Uh, there is a moral law in the law of Moses that's based on the character of God, the Ten Commandments. That hasn't changed. That's, uh, those are basically repeated in the New Testament. There is a judicial law in the law of Moses that was the law that uh, they were supposed to do for the, is- the government of, of Israel. By the way, uh, we don't live in a theocracy like Israel was in a theocracy. We live in a democratic republic. And so at best, those principles may apply. And the third part, uh, remember, were the religious laws. How the religion of Judaism was supposed to be carried out. How they were supposed to handle themselves in the tabernacle, in the temple, and, and those sorts of things. And it is that aspect of the law of Moses that is blotted out. See, how do you know that? Because in context, he tells us exactly what it is. Verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath day. Those ordinances that are blotted out are not the moral laws of God. The ordinances that are blotted out were the judicial, the religious laws that were fulfilled in Christ because he tells us in verse 17 that they're all a shadow of things to come. The body of his, uh, is of Christ. 
Say, Brother Wally, why don't we at Bible Baptist Church celebrate Passover? Why don't we have the Feast of Tabernacles? Why don't we meet Saturday, or Friday night from sundown uh, to Saturday night at sundown? Because that's the Jewish Sabbath. Well, why, why is it with, that we don't keep those Old Testament things? Uh, if we were Jewish, we could as a symbol. But none of us had that in our culture prior to coming to Christ and so there's no reason to keep it. They're, they're all fulfilled. They're, they're blotted out. They, the, those Old Testament orders, they were just a shadow. Jesus Christ and what he did, that's the body. That's the real thing. And in fact, Paul is going to repeat that definition to make sure we understand. You know, listen, Christ did not blot out God's moral laws. Listen, it is the moral laws of God that let us know that we're a guilty sinner who needs Christ. Listen, it was God who said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. It was God who said, thou shalt not kill. And it was God who later interpreted that to mean hatred in our heart as well. It was God who said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus himself, who went on to raise that to, if you lust for a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. It was God who said, thou shalt not steal. It was God who said, thou shalt not lie. It was God who said, thou shalt not covet. Those moral laws have not changed. They show us we need a Savior. But all those religious things were blotted out. And to make sure we don't misunderstand what's blotted out, he repeated, he repeats what those ordinances are. Look at verse 20. It says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, does that sound familiar? We're dead with Christ, that's our position. We're dead from the basics, the first principles of the world and of Judaism. Said, so why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Ordinances, yeah. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and, and doctrines of men. L listen, Christ blotted out all that stuff for us. No believer is required to keep these ordinances. They are fulfilled and blotted out in a shadow of Christ's work. A believer is allowed to keep them as a symbol. The apostles did in Jerusalem and Judea. But they were not required, and so Paul, when he was with the Gentiles, he didn't keep them, and when he went back to Jerusalem with the Jews, he was comfortable keeping them. It was his culture. He was a Jew. And by the way, in the millennial kingdom of Christ, all believers are going to keep them as a symbol. Now, I don't know why a Gentile believer would want to do that. I don't understand that. And Paul is making sure that they don't fall prey to this idea that if they begin to do these things, they will be more spiritual. If they begin to do these things, they will be closer to God. If they begin, that's not true. Jewish Christians were trying to influence Gentile Christians in Colossae to keep Jewish traditions and Old Testament ordinances. Keep these. You'll be more like Jesus. Has uh, anybody like me? So, I, I hate olives. But every once in a while, the olives will be there. My wife likes them. And I'll say to myself, Jesus ate olives. And I'll grab an olive and eat it. And I'll think to myself, why would I do that? I hate olives. 
They were telling them, you know, do this, you'll be more like Jesus. Hey, do this, you will be more like the apostles. Do this. You'll be closer to God, you'll be more spiritual. And Paul is here and he's trying to set this record straight to help them not be pushed down this dark hole to keeping all this Jewish stuff that they were not, not necessary for them to, to keep. They were complete in Christ. Paul battled this false doctrine, an inferior way of Christians living everywhere he went. It was the hot-button issue of his day. Say, so is that all over in, in, in the New Testament? Yeah, it's all over. Go back to Romans 14. Remember, touch not, taste not, handle not. Let no man judge you and meet or drink and respect and holy. I mean, all over the place, Paul is fighting uh, this battle. In Romans chapter 14, notice, what he says to believers in Rome, he says in verse 12, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. By the way, if that verse is not highlighted or circled in your Bible, it ought to be. That's a great Bible truth. Every one of us, you and I will not blame our parents. We will not blame our church. We will not blame some person we knew who was Christian, who acted like a heathen. When you and I face God, we will give account of ourselves strictly for anything we ever did or said. But notice as he goes on, he says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. See, what's he talking about? Jewish diet. Everywhere he goes, he's dealing with Go to Galatians chapter 2. I, I get it. In American Christianity today, this is not a hot-button issue. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. It says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, Christ is dead in vain. Boy, that's a great, powerful statement there. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? By, by the way, foolish is one of the most powerful negative words in the Bible. Oh foolish Galatians. Hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's a rhetorical question. They obviously had received the Spirit by the hearing of the faith, not doing Jewish things. Verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh, a mature, complete, by the Jewish uh, things. Verse 5, For have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he hit by the, wor it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. I mean, everywhere Paul went, this was a huge issue. The place of Judaism and Jewish works and Jewish traditions. 
It's a hot button issue. What does Paul do? He takes them back to who they were in Christ, to great doctrinal truths that they had been taught from the beginning because they were taught rightly, that let them know this that they were being taught was false. Hey, you guys are already forgiven. You are already buried and risen with Christ. You are already complete in Him. You are already redeemed. You are already in meat appropriately placed in the kingdom of God. You don't need this stuff to make you better or more spiritual or higher. It doesn't work. Now, our hot-button issues in America today have little or nothing to do with Jewish traditions. But in the hot-button issues of our day, we need to do the same thing. And that's why this is in the Bible. What does the Bible teach about the nature and role of worship? Have you ever checked how often the word worship is used in the nine letters to seven churches and four letters to three church leaders? Have you ever thought about how what is called worship music compares to the Psalms? See, see, people don't want to go back to the Bible. They just they, they want to do what they want to do. And they comfort themselves in the fact that a lot of people are doing it. What, what does the Bible teach about God's Word? Listen, if we apply biblical principles to God's Word, then we are looking for a preserved word-for-word Bible that we take word for word that you never hear any public correction of. So where'd you get that? Huh? Jesus, Paul, Peter, John. They had the Old Testament Bible. Check how they treated it. What does the Bible teach about the importance of the church? Huh. It, it, it is so incredibly clear. And American believers, they just... They don't want their schedule interfered with by the difficulty of being committed to assemble. That's what it is. All you have to do, go back to the Scriptures. Listen, don't fall for some radio or blogging or television preacher telling you the church is all believers everywhere. Big ding-dong. I mean, the word means assembly. Now that sounds good when you're trying to get money from everybody that's going to other people's churches. Does the Bible teach about being a disciple? Do you really think that you know Jesus had you know live your best life now, get as rich as you can, you know now you know rise as far as you can in the corporate world now? When he said, "If you don't take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple." Whosoever selleth not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. If a man hate not his father or mother or son or daughter, his own life also cannot be my disciple. I get it, it's hyperbole. But it also is hyperbole for the fact that discipleship is not casual, it is not cool, it's not easy. Listen, it's easy to be a, uh, become a disciple. You, you humble yourself and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not easy to follow him. 
which is why a lot of people don't. And you say, Brother Wally, why are you teaching us this? Well, because it's where we are in Colossians. And because I want you to look at the hot-button issues of our day through the lens of Scripture. Because I want you to recognize what you already have in Christ. And when the devil whispers in your ear, you're not faithful enough for God to love you, you don't belong there because you don't do this or that, you just tell Satan, shut up. If you're genuinely saved, I didn't say you go to a church, I didn't say you prayed some prayer that had no impact on your life. If you're genuinely saved, Jesus Christ lives in you. You are complete in Him. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are loved. You are kept by the power of God, and that cannot change. You bow your head and close your eyes.